Now for the main message, Pastor Murray, entitled, A Light Unto My Path, Torah Part 2. Thank you, Landon. Good afternoon, everyone. Good to be back together again. We're almost all back. Sister Jennifer's traveling. Our, uh, a couple of our young ladies are in Toronto. There's a uh, Pure Aid concert tonight that they're volunteering at. We certainly welcome the uh, Laurent and Patrice, sister or Patrice and brother Laurent, and of course our folks, our brothers and sisters online who join us online, whether it's live or later on, certainly greet you. We're on the 25th day of the eighth month, 138 days before Passover, so time is time is passing by. Today, we're going to continue our high-level inductive study on the Torah that we began two weeks ago with the message two weeks ago that was entitled, A Lamp Unto My Feet. But as we, before we get into this uh, part two, I'd like to recap what we went through last time. You'll recall we began by defining the Hebrew word Torah as more than just law. The Hebrew word actually means direction, instruction, and teaching. The root word of that is yara. It's the, the verb form, and it means to direct, to teach, or instruct. It also means to throw, cast, or shoot, as with an arrow. So when we define sin as missing the mark, we are absolutely correct. When we see Torah as hitting the mark, or directional in nature, or instructive, or directive, we see that it is more than just a list of rules. And we'll get into that a little bit more here as we go. Then what we did was we walked through the Pentateuch, or what is known as the Torah, the first five books of, of the Bible, to see how God's law was conveyed to his people over time. Long before it was ever codified at Sinai, it was in place at creation and was taught to Adam. Even before God made woman. We looked at examples of how we could see that God's law, the same law that was codified beginning in Exodus at Sinai, was taught beginning with Adam. And Adam obviously would have learned that from God. We then saw how God used one generation to pass on his law to subsequent generations. Adam first to Eve as the leader of his home, then to Cain and Abel, and then after Abel's death and Cain's banishment, it was taught to Seth. And his lineage actually became, procla became proclaimers of the name of God. We saw that. Culminating in Noah being selected to help God begin again. And we saw that process that we walked through. We then looked at Abraham and saw that he clearly understood God's law and taught it to his son. And this law continued to be passed on to the point where Moses, even after being saved and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, was nursed and raised in his formative years by his mother and knew his ancestry as an Israelite. He also knew that Elohim was God and that his laws included feast days, long before they were ever codified for us beginning at Sinai. All of this clearly recorded for us by God through Moses, and before it was ever written down for Israel. 
We saw that as a teaching parent, God's patience with people's choices did differ based on their maturity, at least initially. He held Moses to a higher standard, and we saw that in that in an example, than the newly released children of Israel. And that this patience changes as they matured and as they were able to be held accountable for what they knew. This spoke to the fact that God is merciful, but not flexible when it comes to his law. And at some point in the maturing process, we are accountable to make a choice of whether to follow him completely or not. And if we choose to do choose to follow him, it comes with expectations. In short, to follow where he leads, to proclaim his name where we are, and to teach and instruct as long as we live future generations of this law so that it can continue to be passed out. Finally, at the end of that part, we discuss the need to get this right so that we can be prepared to teach it when Christ returns to gather his people back to him. When we take, when the first fruits of Christ take their place, may we be able to take our place as first fruits alongside him in service. And from this, we saw how God's law is so much more than just a list of rules. A list of rules is part of God's law, but it is so much more than simply a list of rules to check off and to follow. And it is really the way. And we heard last week, Brother Louis talk about the way. Those who were in the way were being persecuted. That was his angle. But we, we heard him talk about the way. It's really the way that God created for man to live a happy and fulfilling life. This is why when we understand Torah from this high level, we understand what it really is and all that it encompasses, that David could write such a beautiful and profound and detailed psalm about it in Psalm 119. So with that as the backdrop and the review, what I'd like to do today is to continue this high-level look at Torah and see how New Testament teachings have their roots in Torah. Because Torah means teaching, direction, and instruction. And God's way never changes. So when we study our Bibles, it's like we need to put on our Torah glasses and view it through the lens of Torah. And viewing the Bible through that helps us see everything more clearly. So let's dig into some of these New Testament teachings. The beginning of the first message, we talked about some of the the debates and the, the, the arguments in Christianity that happen, the law versus grace, or legalism, or what laws actually apply in our lives, and how those debates have happened for generations upon generation. But when we view them through this grander level view of Torah, it become a little bit easier to explain. So let's start digging into some of these New Testament teachings here in part two. Before we do, like a bit of an acknowledgement. When we bring up, and we covered this last time as well, I'd like to cover it again here. When we bring up the concept of God's law, it generally invokes feelings inside someone, depending on their maturity, depending on where they are in their journey with God, depending on their perspectives. For some, depending on your, their viewpoint and their maturity, it invokes fear, sometimes a, a respectful fear, sometimes an irrational phobia. In some ways, it can be a, a, a sense of piety in a good way. 
In some ways, some can react sanctimoniously towards God's law. Some in awe, some in respect, or some even in self-righteousness. And it brings to light those questions that we that I just referred to. Law versus grace, legalism. What laws actually apply? Did Christ come to do away with the law? These are Christianity has debated those back and forth. We now we when you have a grand view of Torah, these questions become easy to answer. For those of us who are students of the Bible, those some of those questions don't make any sense because we've answered those for ourselves. We've got quick and correct answers for them, and that's good. But how understanding how some come to believe that the Bible even says some of those things is important. Because if we are to become teachers of God's way, now and on into the future as first fruits, then we must be able to break down some of these arguments in order to reverse course and understand how in the world some could possibly think that these things could be accurate. So when we come to see God's law as simply a set of rules that we need to document, obey, and check off, and that's part of it, it is. But when we come to see them that that's all God's law is, that we aim to have a clean sheet every day by checking off the list of rules that we must follow, then these debates become natural. What laws apply? What laws don't apply? Where are the loopholes? When it becomes strictly about trying to follow that clean sheet, we get into those debates. Those debates even come into which covenant applies. Is it the Noahide covenant? Is it the Mosaic covenant? Is it the Davidic covenant? Which laws apply? Or is it Noah's seven laws? Is it Moses' ten laws? Or is it Christ's two laws? We can see how when we don't see Torah as this overarching way that God gave us to live, that we can have these debates. But when we understand what Torah is, these answers become quite simple. But we must be able to answer them so that we can teach others who are coming out of it. So let's begin by establishing, as we look into the New Testament, these New Testament doctrines, let's establish a premise. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And remember, when we use the, the concept of Torah, we're talking God's way, directive, instructional, teaching, all part and parcel, of course, including the rules that he expects us to obey. But, but bigger than that. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Well-known well known verse. We're initially here going to pull it out of context because many people read this and and and... and, and Abide by it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A very well-known Christian principle, a, a fact. But let's read it in context, and then we'll see how Torah applies to even this concept. We go back to, you could go back to verse 1, but we won't do, we don't have time for that. Let's go back to verse 7. Remember those who have rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied 
with them. Those who have ruled over you is where this starts. This talks about, in today's vernacular, we talk about the ministry. But it includes so much more than that as well. It includes parents, those who teach you God's way of life. We went back last or two weeks ago and, ta- and showed how God's law was to be passed down through successive generations. But when we are considering those who have ruled over you, part of the ruling over is the teaching aspect. And we see that here, who have spoken the word of God to you. That comes into those who are tasked with teaching God's way. Remember them. So remember what they say. Because this God's law, Torah is passed down as we remember generation upon generation. Whose faith follow. So follow. Remember Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Torah here is documented in the word of God. And we see here considering, considering the outcome of their conduct. If you have the King James, it says considering the end of their conversations. When we break down those two Greek words, the word considering really means to observe carefully. To observe carefully, and the, the word conversation, we've covered this before, actually is a much deeper, it means conduct. So as you consider those who are teaching you God's way, listen to what they say and match it up against the word of God because they should be teaching from the word of God, and then carefully observe their conduct to see if it matches up. And this is where the discernment comes in, in understanding Torah. Do actions match with teaching? And that's something that we've covered here going back several months and years. This is one reason why God warns against people becoming teachers and to take on that task with extreme seriousness. Because not only must you be able to teach and teach according to God's way, but to do so in such a way that your example follows through. And what we, what we glean from here, and this, this premise I wanted to start out with here, is that God's way has never changed. Jesus Christ, the word, and through whom we, we and we'll, we'll see that more here today, has never changed. Applications may change. The way to celebrate things may change, more later on that, but God's way, Torah, doesn't change when you view it from a high level. God's way has never changed. So we'll start out with that premise. Now we'll jump into some doctrinal applications. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 8. We know the context here. Peter and John are addressing the Sanhedrin, following the, the well-known Pentecost of 31 AD. Then Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. So again, speaking to the teachers of the day. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means has he, he has been made well? Let it be known to you and to all people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
By him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a core teaching that the, of the Christian movement, of our, of our belief system, that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. We are saved only by and through Jesus Christ. But what we see here, when we pull this, when we study this here in the New Testament, in the, in the Greek scriptures, is that we're quoting from Psalms, and we're referencing Isaiah. So we're going back into the Torah. We're going back into the writings. Quoting here from, and we don't have time to turn there, but quoting from Psalm 118. And referencing the cornerstone concept here of Jesus Christ being that chief cornerstone, all the way back into Isaiah 28. But it goes further than that. This concept of Christ being the way, and the only way by which salvation comes, isn't a New Testament concept. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And here God is doling out his judgment upon the serpent and upon Adam and upon the woman. We'll pick it up here for time's sake in verse 15. Speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And speaking of her seed, he shall bruise your your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we have this first inkling of Jesus Christ all the way back here at the beginning of Torah. But let's go let's go into Deuteronomy 18 and see what Moses the prophet had to say. So God in his judgment to the serpent pointed forward to Jesus Christ. Here, Moses goes a little deeper for us in Deuteronomy 18. We'll begin in verse 15 through 22. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die, reminding them, of their parents' words back 38 years before, 39 years before. And the Lord said to me, continuing in verse 17, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. There's one way. You speak the words of the prophet, and you live, or you don't speak the words of the prophet, and you don't. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, then that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. 
So we see here even the concept of no fear. That's a concept that we're, that, that we're hearing about now, especially as the world changes. There's no need to fear what man can do. The prophet is either, what we hear is either of God or it's not of God. But here Christ has always been the way back to paradise and the way back to the tree of life. There's no other way. God covered it in his judgment to the serpent and he covers it here to the second generation here of Israelites in talking through Moses. That there is one way and he will send that prophet and it is through him that they will find their way back. That's why we can read in Revelation, we don't turn there, Revelation 13, verse 8, we know that the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world because all these things are are tied up together. I know we know that, but this concept of Christ being being the key to Christianity and the way to eternal life wasn't something that Peter first said in Acts chapter 4. Peter was simply teaching what he knew to be true from the law. It goes all the way back into Torah, that Christ was always the way. When God closed the gates of Eden and, and, and removed man from paradise, the way back was always through Christ. It was always through Christ. And that's where we start to see these glimpses of Torah from start to finish. That whatever you find as a New Testament teaching, you'll find back here. Let's move on. And go to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. We'll look at a, another concept. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. We see here a prohibition of Moabites coming into the assembly of Israel. Wow, this God, he's, he's pretty well defined here. He doesn't allow for anything. to he, he only wants Israel. That's true. But as we've come to learn in the New Testament, Romans 11 and all these things were, and God wanting, wanting mankind to be saved. But there's a way for mankind to be saved. A, it's through Christ. And we see here this, this concept. We, we, we see this here, this concept here of Moabites being banned from the assembly of Israel. Let's go to Ruth chapter 1. Was God really about banning Moabite blood from Israel. Was that what he was about? Or was it something deeper? Some some concept we've come to under, understand in a deeper way from Jesus Christ, but that was clearly there. Clearly there in the Old Testament, in the Torah. Ruth chapter 1. Verse 16 through 17. But I'll remind you back in Verse 1 and 2, Ruth was from Moab. She married the sons of, one of the sons of Elimelech, Elimelech and his wife Naomi. And we know the story, so we won't, uh, we won't go into too much detail here, but verse 16, Ruth said, 
after her mother encouraged her just to, after the death of their husbands, Naomi's husband died, and then their two, her two sons died, encouraged Ruth and Orpah to just go back to their, their homes. What we see here, Ruth, verse 16, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me. The Lord, Yahweh, do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts you from me. And she then, in this profession of faith to Yahweh, that your God will be my God. She now becomes, in effect, what we read about in Romans chapter 11, being grafted in, it becomes an Israelite. She follows the statutes of Israel. She follows the gleaning laws when she goes to, to gather food. She follows the kinsman redeemer law and becomes the wife of Boaz after some, after the one ahead of Boaz re, chooses to refuse that opportunity to be her kinsman redeemer. She was now an Israelite because she chose to follow Yahweh. Even if you accept, when you go back to Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, and you read that it says to the 10th generation, if you accept that as being technical, that clause is fact. Boaz was the seventh from Judah when you follow through. The Deuteronomy 23 took place in between Judah and Boaz. So sometime in there, that, that, that law was read to the children of Israel, the second generation, but Boaz was the seventh generation from Judah. So it fell within God's prohibition of ten generations to allow a Moabite into the assembly, not just into the assembly, but into the lineage of David and into the lineage of Jesus Christ. Because professing faith in Yahweh has always been the way back. Has always been the way back. Christ has always been the way. The Torah has always been the way. And God, the Lord God of Israel has always been the Lord God of his people. This is a Old Testament application of the greater principle of a covenant with Yahweh in light of God's judgment that no Moabite will ever be accepted into Israel. Again, because she was no longer a Moabite but was grafted into the people of Israel due to her profession of faith in Yahweh. Let's go to Ephesians 2. Look at another doctrine or another teaching. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8 and 9 is where we'll go. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not of works, lest anyone should boast. So this teaching of saved by faith is a major, major New Testament concept. We are saved by faith. Paul is very clear here. We are saved by, by faith. And oftentimes, as you know, it flies in the face of those who believe in Old Testament teachings, that we no longer are saved that way. We're now saved by faith. We are enlightened. We are enlightened New Testament Christians, because we are saved by faith. 
Let's go to Romans chapter 10 first before we go back to the Torah. Romans chapter 10. And again, we're, as you know, we've covered these scriptures many, many, many times. For today's today, purpose of today, we don't have time to, to zoom out here when we come into We could spend all day in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But Romans chapter 10, verse 17. This also is part and parcel of, of this faith doctrine that is, that is true, but sometimes misapplied by some Christians. Verse 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we link this up. We are saved by faith and faith comes through hearing and it comes through hearing the word of God. In this context, it takes us back to the covenant God made with Abraham. When you see the context here of Romans 9, 10, and 11, it links this, this teaching all the way back to the covenant God made with Abraham, the covenant that he continues through Moses and then continues through Christ. But all related to today's topic of Torah. But we'll leave, we'll, we'll leave, we need to leave that here alone for a little bit. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. And we are saved by that faith. Not by works, but saved by faith. Let's go back to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. And as you turn there, I'll remind you of that covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. You know what? Let's take time. Let's go back to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 first. We'll take the time to do this. We've got time. The Lord said to Abraham, verse 1 of chapter 12, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you, and I will curse him who curses you. And you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This initial promise God made to Abraham, we're very familiar with that. But this starts out, this covenant that God made with Abraham. We'll fast forward here to chapter 17. Verse 4, we'll read verses 4 to 8, and then we'll get to where I wanted to go. 24 years later, after he first called Abraham and told him to leave, Abraham is now 99. As for me, verse 4, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations, this unconditional covenant he made with Abraham. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. But we've got an issue. We've got Ishmael in the way. So who's the son of promise? Who's the son of promise? God clears that up for us in verse 19. Verses 19 through 22. Then God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. Because you asked, I will do something special for Ishmael. 
but he's not the son of promise. He's not the one through whom this covenant will go. But my covenant, my covenant, not yours, this is unconditional, this is God's covenant, I will make it through Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. Faith comes by hearing, and by hearing the word of God. This is what Abraham heard, and he was clear. It's As much as he asked that it be Ishmael, because that was who was alive at the time, and he loved Ishmael, God said, no, no, it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. Abraham heard this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Let's go to Genesis 22. Verses 2 to 5. We are saved by faith. This renaissance new concept that Paul came up with in the New Testament. Verse 2. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering. Wow, they knew about burnt offerings. We covered that last week. On one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the young man, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And we will come back to you. We will come back to you. That is saving faith. We will come back. Why did he have that faith? Because faith comes from hearing the word of God. And God said, You shall be the man through whom all nations will be blessed, and it will be done through Isaac. Yet as God is asking him to sacrifice his son, Abraham in full, to Abraham, the, the prophet, Abraham the patriarch, is telling the men that he is with, we will come back. He could have said, I'll be back later. No one would have batted an eye. But he said, we will be back. Let's go forward to Hebrews chapter 11. Paul comes to a, an amazing conclusion that I'm sure you're familiar with. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19. By faith, Hebrews 11, verse 17. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. We read that. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. God said it would go through Isaac. I have no idea how this is going to work. But even if God has to raise him from the dead, we're going to come back together because God said so. God said so. That is saving faith. That is not some isolated concept in the New Testament, but it is part of Torah. Saving faith is part of Torah. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. That even Abraham understood what saving faith was. And Paul here concludes he must have had some concept of the resurrection or that God would have done something Supernatural, because God made a promise and God keeps promises. 
Faith in Yahweh has always been part of Torah. Has always been part of the way. God's way, the only way. Let's go back to Ephesians 2, where we were. Look at one more concept there. Ephesians 2, back to verse 8, where we were. We read about saved through faith. Verse 8 begins, though, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now this is most certainly a New Testament concept. This is most certainly a New Testament concept. This is what Christ came to reveal to us, that we are saved by grace. Through faith, we, we, we get all that, but most certainly, this of all things must be a New Testament concept. This is, is surely that. This is not anything we heard about in Torah. This is some revelation that Christ came to show us that we are saved by grace. This unmerited pardon that Christ brought to us when he came to establish the new covenant, he taught us this grace. John 1. Let's go to John 1. Before we go back to Torah. John 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, it's right there. The law came through Moses. That's how we were saved in the Old Testament. But truth and grace, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But look closer when someone points this out to you. The law was given through Moses. Not by Moses. The law didn't come by Moses. It came through Moses. Moses was not the author of Torah. Torah has always been. Moses couldn't have authored Torah because Torah has always been. We've seen that. We've covered that last week. It was codified through, Mo- through Moses, but he was not the author of it. It was through him that God codified this. The but also is in italics. The but is in italics, which means it wasn't there. So let's read it without the but, because the but wasn't there. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ. That's not, now it's not antagonistic, it's complementary. It's complementary. But let's go back to, even then though, this is a, even with that, this is a fantastic New Testament concept. Let's go back to Exodus 34 and see otherwise. Exodus 34. Verse 4, we'll begin in verse, uh, we'll begin in verse 5. We'll read through verse 9. Now the Lord descended in the cloud, and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, 
and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. This Moses, who apparently was the conveyor of a list so impossible to follow, a list of rules so impossible to follow, describes the heart to please God of the Old Testament this way. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity. Read on the back side there that it requires repentance from those who want to stay in his presence. That's another concept. But to those who want to be part of God, he's very merciful. He's very forgiving. But let's read on. Let's read on. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord pray go among us, even though we are stiff-necked. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. We don't deserve this, God, because we have completely brought shame to your name. We have not proclaimed your name the right way. We have sinned and we're contrary to Torah. But if you find it in your heart to accept our repentance, please come among us and let us be amongst you. Even though, I get it, these, we are a stiff-necked, hard-to-deal-with people. Please, do you find it in your grace to permit us to be in your presence? Grace has always been part of Torah. Grace and law have always gone together. The fact that we can even be in God's presence is due to his grace. Back to John 1. Important part that we miss here. Verse 16 through 18. John 1. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Who was Moses speaking to back in Exodus 34? He was speaking to Christ, the one who became Christ. So this relationship that they had, grace has always been part of Torah. Moses was speaking to Christ. Torah simply provides ways for us as sinful, carnal people to come into the presence of and fellowship with holiness, with God, with Jesus Christ. Torah provides those ways. That's where we get into some of the statutes, and we're going to cover that down the uh, later. We're going to cover that later. But part of Torah provides us with ways in our sinful way to come into his presence. To come into his presence. Let's go to Acts 15. Acts 15. One of the major New Testament doctrinal changes here in Acts 15. We've covered this. We covered the process by which they came to this conclusion several months ago. So we won't take too much time to go into that. But we begin in verse 1 and 2 of Acts 15. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, 
when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. They had determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And then we know they came to through a proper dialogue, through proper um, discourse, through proper uh, uh, dealing with con- conflict resolution. They came to an understanding that, you know what, I think Paul and Barnabas are right here. Paul and Barnabas are right. We won't, again, we won't take time to walk through how all that, that process happened. It's a fascinating process when you understand the Greek words of consider and dispute and then back that into the, the, the experiences that they, that they shared as well as the Hebrew scriptures. They came to this conclusion. But let's go down and read verses 18 through 21. Known to God from eternity are all his works. This is James now speaking on behalf of the group. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath, and then continuing on, it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, again, to not only to write this letter of their decision, but to convey this letter in person. But we read back in verse 19, they made a judgment. Therefore, I judge. And we're going to get into judgments. Probably we won't have time to do it today. We'll probably do that in part three. But here... Based on off all of the off all of the interaction, off all of the conflict resolution, all of the Hebrew scriptures they read, all of their what Peter was able to profess from his his dreams from God and all that God taught him there, as well as Paul and Barnabas' uh, experiences, together they came to a judgment that we should not trouble them from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. They made a judgment here to facilitate the conversion of Gentiles who had much larger issues to repent of to deal with and to change. And we see those much larger issues there. It was these issues they included in the written judgment. When you read down verses 24 through 29, we don't have time to read there, but it was those large major ticket items that they they needed to get their heads around. They made a judgment here to say, we know what the law of Moses says, but we're going to make a judgment here and say, circumcision is not required at this point. Now, a couple of points here. Judgments are a large part of Torah. We don't have time to go into all of that right now. So let's just sort of make a mental note of this concept of judgment. We'll shelve that, and we're going to come back to that in a future message. But how in their wise understanding of Torah could they come to this judgment that they would not force repentant Gentiles to be circumcised and that a full understanding of the concept was more of the heart? And you read that in verse 8. Let's go back to verse 8 through 11. So part and parcel of, as they were interacting here in this conflict resolution, they came to understand that what was really at the core here was the heart. So God, verse 8, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? 
But we believe that through the grace of the Lord God Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So, again, how in their wise understanding of Torah could they agree to this judgment that they would not force these repentant Gentiles to be circumcised? And that this full concept here was really about the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. When you view the Torah as simply a set of rules that we must make note of, make a checklist of, and follow to a T without understanding the greater concepts, this is not to say we disobey God's law, but when we understand what Torah really is, it, w- it is easy to see how this conflict arose, that in order to be saved, we must be circumcised. That's where we, we get that back here. But when we understand Torah is teaching, and that there's a reason behind what God says, we see this, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. We're going to read verses 12 through 22. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him. Again, the same message we hear scattered throughout the Torah. To walk in all his ways and to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today, which are for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And he chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples as it is this day. And we covered that back in the covenant scriptures. Therefore, because of all of this, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no more. Moses went to God and said, listen, can't you find it in your heart, please, to accept us into your presence? We're sorry. And we are a bunch of stiff-necked, stubborn people. Here, part of that under, part of that concept of getting rid of the stiff neckedness is to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And that's what it was always about. It was always about the heart. Because God's law is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. He wanted people of good heart. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow. And loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths to his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. Your God has fulfilled and continues to fulfill the promise he made to your forefather Abraham but circumcise the foreskin of your heart so that you can be in his presence, so you can stop being stiff-necked. This sounds, circumcision of the heart, sounds like a New Testament teaching, but that's really just a misnomer. Again, if you think of Torah as just a set of rules that God gave Moses, that's easy to to, to come to that misnomer. But when you understand Torah as the way of God, we see these New Testament concepts taught from the very beginning. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. To the men in the assembly who are to lead their homes and to be responsible for ensuring that the future generations 
your children and your grandchildren and subsequent generations are taught the Torah, I'm going to circumcise your foreskin because it will be a daily reminder of the need to change one's heart and to follow God. It pictures the seriousness and the permanence of making a choice to follow God. This concept of circumcision of the heart is too much for you. So I'm going to dumb this down and I'm going to give you a reminder. Every day, every day, you will see a reminder multiple times a day to circumcise the foreskin of your heart that I need to realize that I serve Yahweh and I am a stiff-necked person and I need to just humble myself to come before him. This is a constant reminder the leaders of their homes had that they should have seen because it was right there. But when it becomes just about the rules, you miss the point, which was always about circumcising the heart. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17, where Brother Mark read earlier. Read verses 17 through 21. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. It can't be destroyed because it's not just a set of rules. It's part of it. Set of rules is part of it. That's not to, we are not demeaning the Ten Commandments. We're not demeaning any of the, the laws that God established. But it can't be destroyed because it has always been. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of these of the least commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, remember what we read earlier? The the leaders that have rule over you, listen to them, follow them as as it compares to God, and then watch what they do. And when what they do follows what, what matches with what they say, imitate them. Paul says later on, as they imitate Christ. Teaching, what we read here. Whoever breaks one of these and teaches men so, shall we call the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, that is doing and teaching is part and parcel of the same concept. He should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless you realize that Torah is more than just a set of rules that I need to check off so I can feel holy, That it involves grace. It involves faith. It involves understanding that Christ has always been the way back to paradise, back to Eden, back to the tree of life. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And we see here teaching tied to Torah. It's not that just, again, it is never that we keep it for ourselves. It is that we keep it and pass it on and teach others how to do it, which is why we must get this right. Verse 21. You have heard it said of old. You've heard it said of old. This is linked back to verse 20 about exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees. And then Christ proceeds. We won't take time to read the rest, but throughout what we call chapter 5, the rest of chapter 5, he continues to say, you have heard it said of old. 
he proceeds to magnify the law beyond the set of rules that the Pharisees were teaching for a number of reasons. But he also needed, because teaching is such an important part of Torah keeping, he needed to stop the errant teaching of the law. He needed to stop that this was the 613 laws that they needed to abide by to feel righteous. Forget justice and mercy and faith and all these other things. He needed to stop that errant teaching because that's all they were continuing to teach at this point. It was being taught wrong. Torah was being taught wrong. Therefore, because they were teaching Torah wrong, they were actually in violation of Torah themselves and didn't know it. So he came not only to live it as properly as an example for us, but to teach it properly too. But I say to you, how could he say to them? Because he wrote it. He wrote it because it has always been. It has always been. Matthew 22. We talked about the debate between Noah's seven commandments, Moses' ten, and Christ's two. Again, when you have blinders on that Torah is, is so specific and it's not this greater concept of God's way, we get into these debates. These debates are easily, easily answered when we understand Torah from this high level. Matthew 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. There it is. Two commandments, that's all we need. That's all we need. They supersede Moses and Noah. It's right there for us. But verse 40 is the key. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. On these two specific teachings, love God and love your fellow man, the entire law, the entire Torah hangs on those. This is only competitive when we see the laws as a list of do's and don'ts, which the Pharisees and the Sadducees clearly did from the question that they asked. If, if I'm going to choose one, what's, if I'm going to enumerate these based off of what's most important, which one do I keep? Give me, give me the one I got to keep. That wasn't the point. That wasn't his point. And Christ had to come and teach this different way. But understanding that God's way is about properly loving God and loving man. Christ said, you want, you want to boil down Torah to, to something? Boil it down to this. Love God and love man. Everything else you can find in those concepts. Everything. Everything else is important. But if you want to boil it right down, love God and love man. Everything else we can find in those two, in those two laws. But everything else hangs on them. Everything else is still there. They haven't disappeared, but they hang on those two concepts. These, this, this is the Torah glasses that we look through. Is what am I do? Is what I am doing today, right now? Is it loving God, and/or loving man? Is it breaking either of those? Then I need to do something. I need to do something about my stiff being so stiff-necked. 
But let's go back to Leviticus 19. You know it's back there, but we're going to go look at it because we need to be able to teach this. We need to be able to, at some point, talk others through this. For the record, the first one is back in Exodus chapter 20. The very first commandment is all about that. It's listed many other places, but loving your fellow man is right here. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and I am the Lord. Right there, this concept, this renaissance concept that Christ came to to teach us is right back there in Torah, right there in black and white. Let's go to coming. We're going to wind this down here and pick it up again in a few weeks. Let's go to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. And talk about New Covenant. Again, we've covered this from many angles. If you've followed our messages here, the studies, and even, quite frankly, uh, even sermons by Vance Stinson, who has covered, covered this topic on several occasions. Jeremiah 31, very famous passages here, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. And again, we, don't, we won't have time to dig too deeply into this, but I just want to cover this. Continuing Jeremiah 31, 31. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant they made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all know shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. We know this points to the time in the future when God fulfills what he promised Moses in Deuteronomy 30, where he will gather his people again. But we have an opportunity early to be grafted into this covenant early, to become part of the first fruits groups that will help Christ do this teaching. But what we see here, what's covered, Pastor Adrian's covered, Deacon Jan has covered this. This covenant is a renewed covenant. Their terms don't change. How they are able to keep it, God provides a different way through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. But the terms can't change because they've always been the same. Torah has always been Torah. Long before Moses walked the earth, long before Abraham walked the earth, long before Eve walked the earth, Torah was Torah. This is why our understanding of the new covenant must line up with the Hebrew scriptures first because the terms remain the same. God's law is still the requirement. He gives us a better, a different opportunity to keep it with his Holy Spirit indwelling in us, a piece of himself that enables us to keep it. But we still must make that choice. But the terms are still the same. That's why it is a renewed covenant, because the terms remain the same. The execution might be a little bit different, but it still lines up with Torah. They said they simply chose not to circumcise their hearts. And now God provides us through his Holy Spirit, a way to circumcise our hearts. But 
it goes back then further than even the covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, this covenant, this renewed covenant. It goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go back there as we finish off here today. Genesis 1. This new covenant that God will establish with, with Israel and Judah, where he will write his law in their hearts so that he will be their God and they will be his people and he'll remember their sin no more, fulfills all of those covenants with David, with Moses, with Noah, with Abraham. But it goes even back further. Genesis 1 verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. and Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's a Torah point that we'll get into next time. Male and female, he created them. That goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Shelve that. Remember that for next time. We'll cover that. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was God's dream. And his dream will come true. But he does it through Torah. And that stems all the way back here to the beginning. We'll finish on Genesis 3. We won't quite finish in Genesis 3. We're going to go to Genesis 3 here first. Genesis 3, verse 22. Behold, the Lord God said, The man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword with which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The new covenant, this renewed covenant, allows is God's tool, is God's way to fulfill his original stated desires of making man in his image and after his likeness, giving them dominion over his creation and access to the tree of life and to paradise. Torah was the way we should have chosen and it remains the way back to the tree of life and it will be the way we live forever like one of them as God said here in verse 22. There's still more to cover. So there's a bigger, grander concept that now that we've got this, the basis of what Torah is over the last two messages, that it is this grand way of describing all that is God's way, we need to dig into laws, statutes, ordinances, and judgments and to talk about what those really are because they go to answering some of these deeper questions that cause angst and debate within the religious movement, like what laws really apply and what, why does, are there cultural laws that no longer apply? All of these questions that people look for loopholes around, we answer when we understand how laws and statutes and ordinances and judgments play into this grand concept of Torah, which is God's way of life. Let's finish before we do in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We'll finish with the words of the psalmist. Now that we've had a 
couple of weeks to get our heads around the Torah and see it for this beautiful way of life that God describes for us. We'll begin at verse 97. Oh, how love I your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, God, Yahweh, through your commandments, through these these teachings, you make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. And I have more understanding than all of my teachers. When I understand Torah, I have more understanding than anybody else on the face of the earth. Your testimonies are my meditation. Your testimonies, your way of life is what is what rolls around in my mind. It's what I'm always focusing on. I understand more than the ancients, more than the wisest of, of all the philosophers. Because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way. It has kept me on the right and narrow path. Not perfect. I, I can be stiff-necked. I can stumble. But it has kept me in the way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. This is not a list of rules that are hard to keep and that we have to, we have to, like a meal of broccoli and Brussels sprouts and all the other stuff we don't like. I actually like those things, but <laughs> these are sweet words to our taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. How do I figure these things out? Through his law, through Torah. It's what gives me understanding. It doesn't make me fearful or checking off a set of boxes to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm okay. It's, it's all of these concepts that add up into what Torah is. Therefore, because of all this, I hate every false way. Anything that goes against Torah, I hate. I don't want to be a part of. Because I get what Torah is. Your word, your law, your way of life is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It guides everything I do. So next time, this concept of Torah, the God's law, God's way is so vast. So vast. It covers covers everything that David said here. It covers all that we do. We're going to dig in a little bit more next time into laws, statutes, ordinance, and judgments. And see how these things play now that we've got this this. Beautiful painting of what Torah really is. If you'd all like to rise, we will close in prayer. And before we do, I want to let those online say, let them know that we will not have a live service here next week. There's going to be a lot of traveling going on, so we're going to be, those who have, of us who remain behind will be visiting with our Kitchener brethren. So we apologize that next week we will not have a live service. But please do join us in two weeks uh, for our next live service. Uh, please rise. We'll close in prayer and bid, a, bid goodbye to our brothers and sisters online. Great, almighty, eternal, heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you, of Jesus Christ, and who you both are, this way of life that you created for us, that you, rather than just selfishly live this way alone, that you wanted to share this glory with us, and you created us after your image, in your likeness. But you want us to choose you set before us all that we need to know in this life through your holy word. And that faith in that word comes through reading it, through studying, through hearing it, because it comes all the way back to the very beginning, because your way has always been. And we're so grateful that you have 
opened our eyes to your way of life. Please give us the wisdom, the knowledge, and the understanding to constantly wanting to deepen our understanding of Torah, of what your way of life really is. That it is so much more than what limited teachers have taught down through the millennia. It is so much more than a set of rules that we need to fearfully live by. But these rules provide concepts. These rules provide insight into who you are and what your mind is like and how we must be in order to follow you. Please give us your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this opportunity to be grafted into this covenant. Please give us your Holy Spirit that we may honor and glorify you and seek after you every day of our lives. We're so grateful for this. We ask you to go with us now as we close this technology down that we are so grateful that we have to be able to share your ways with those who do not have access to, to fellowship close by. Please be with them. Please go with them now. Make their Sabbaths, the rest of their Sabbaths, a, an inspiration, an edification. And be with our, the rest of our service here. We thank you so very much for you, for who you are and that you have described that for us through the beautiful picture of Torah. We thank you for this. We leave the rest of this service in your hands. Please go with us and please help us go with you. We ask all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.